Hello and welcome to Bombato, the Scandinavian La Liga podcast. And if we're laughing, it's because just before I hit record, um, I had a sort of revelation or a realization, if you like, that my dear friend, my long friend, uh, long standing friend, Alexander Jonsson, has a genuine problem and a genuine addiction. Would you like to tell the listeners what you said to me? No, that um, earlier today I uh, I ordered a Bruno Soriano Villarreal shirt, which I'm very excited about, and it was a 70% discount on it, which uh, is excitement all over the place. So, dear listener, you're probably listening right now and you're thinking, what's wrong with that? She's bought a Villarreal shirt. It was uh, very cheaply and very affordably priced. Bruno Soriano is a great player. There's nothing wrong with that. Yes, in isolation, that is completely fine. But would you like to tell us if you even know how many other football shirts you have, Alexandra Jansson? I think this will become the 129th shirt in my are you, collection. Are you, are you serious? And oh. I have to say that this has been a very trying time for me, this, this uh, corona pandemic, because uh, a lot of the clubs... Uh, they're selling out their shirts much cheaper than normal with big discounts. Uh, and I don't know how many times. I, I, this is actually the first one, though, that I buy uh, during this period. But I don't know how many times I've been one click away. Uh, because normally I have the rule that I have to go to the city of the team to buy uh, buy the shirt. With this Bruno Soriano, I feel like it's okay because this is could be his last season for Villarreal. It's just a few games left. His contract has not been renewed yet. And it's just such a big story and I just need it. Um, <laughs> but I've, I mean, been, I've been on the Real Oviedo uh, sh- sh- shop on their website, I think five times during this corona pandemic and being like, yeah, I want that one. But if I get that one, they have this specific uh, uh, new shirt that they had for one match, which is like... Uh, uh, give a tribute to one of the founding clubs and I have the other one because it did it last year without its two clubs um, and so I was like I want that one but I really want this season shirt and I was like but it's discounts on both so if I get both and then it was another shirt which I forgot about now that I also wanted and I was like all right, all right. and then I was yeah. realizing that even though it's discounts if I end up buying all of these it's going to be really expensive so I actually took my way myself away from the situation closed the computer and I didn't do it but now I ended up with the VRL shirt instead I feel like we should have an intervention at some point um, and I also realized that we actually have some shirt beef if you want to call it that because I still haven't forgotten that I'm oh still yeah old, uh, I'm still old and this I mean if people haven't switched off already they definitely will now I'm still owed a free shirt from Girona for buying shares in the club that I'm pretty sure I don't own uh, and Alex got hers so and I uh, bought shares because me. because Lee was on me about buying shares and on a lot of other people to do it I did it and I got two match tickets for a game which I didn't need yeah. because I had accreditation to the game as well uh, so I gave it to two to people outside the stadium and I got a Girona shirt and you never got yours I got jack shit. That's what I got. Um, and I also got the embarrassment. I'm pretty sure there was quite a few other people who I encouraged to buy shares as well who never got their, um, I don't know, confirmation that you have shares or whatever. Although, I mean, since then, what's happened is Girona's been bought over like three times. So any shares that I 
may or may not have owned that they did with the money that I sent them specifically to buy shares are probably worth like the price of a cup of tea now so I'm not even entirely sure that it would be of any use we should move on that's another story for basically you and I because I don't think anyone else would care <laughs> so first topic on the agenda Real Sociedad are not back I don't think but Alexander Isaac's definitely back do you agree with my assessment yes I, I definitely do um, yesterday was it yesterday I'm, I'm so confused with all these uh, games I think so and it's probably not going to be yesterday because this is going to come out tomorrow, I think. <laughs> so that doesn't this week. <laughs> this week. <laughs> now, he, he played a really good game uh, and uh, scored against Levante and especially scored an incredible goal. But overall, it's the feeling of Alexander Isak and, and how he acted on the pitch uh, and his connection with Oyar Zabal. Uh, it just started to feel again like the Isak we saw before all of this uh, happened. If Porto had been a little bit better in his decision-making, he could easily have had an assist as well. Maybe um, he didn't get general. a shirt from Girona either when he left. I don't know <laughs> Yeah, what's I mean, bothering I, him. I, I Don't even start me on that. The subject of Porto and Girona is another one that makes me a little bit annoyed because of last season. But yeah, stick to the topic. Stick <laughs> sorry, to the topic. Sorry. Yeah, so it's two goals in, in his last two games. And the other thing, I mean, like you rightly said, the goal he scored against Levante was beautiful. His previous goal was Espanyol, if I'm remembering correctly. It was a really nice finish too. It's like a snapshot, um, really nicely tucked away that no one's going to stop um, any day of the week, any goalkeeper. So I've been I've been rummaging around a little because this was a topic that I've been banging on a, a little bit before uh, his sort of downturn, his, when his purple patch ended, but when he was sort of scoring goals every other game, basically, I was looking at the numbers, uh, trying to figure out kind of where he might end up the season. And so now that he's scored a couple of times again, I feel like I can return to that topic without it being ridiculous. So he's got 16 goals in all competitions so far for Real Sociedad. They have five games left to play if you include the one four league games and the Copa del Rey final, if and when that eventually happens. Uh, so he, he has five games left to score, and I would I would hope, um, and I would I would wager that he will score at least once in those games. I don't think his goal scoring is over for the season, but already those sixteen goals are more than John Gadetti's best season in Spain which was 12 in all competition in 2015-16. Better than John Carew's best season in Spain, which was 14 for Valencia in 2000-2001. Better than Henke Larsson's best season in Spain, which was 15 in 2005-2006. The sort of big number that I've been talking about and the one that I I think it would be really impressive if he could match would be Zlatan Ibrahimovic's 21 in 2009-10 in all competition. So he has... Five games to hit five more goals to match that. I mean, it's it's not, I don't know about you, I don't think it's out with the realms of possibility. Honestly, I'm not really sure it will happen because Real Sociedad's running is pretty difficult still. There's there's a few tricky matches that they're going to have to play, um, but it's possible. And, you know, he's defied my expectations already with scoring, well, 16 so far as an early 20s uh, footballer in an entirely new league at the highest level he's ever played at. So who knows, right? Yeah, and I saw a quite interesting stat as well, is that he's been involved in a goal every 97 minutes uh, this season in La Liga, or in, I don't know if it's in La Liga, or I think it's in total, in total, um, for Real Sociedad, which is incredible. You think about it, it's a 20-year-old kid, his first ever season in what is probably, well, is the best league in the world. Um, and doing, doing that in, in a new country, uh, also how he's learned Spanish is incredible. We saw him uh, after the last game uh, at Anoeta when he was interviewed by, by Dani Mendes, who we had on the podcast not, not a while back. Um, and he's doing perfect Spanish. And we're not, we're not only talking about the fact that he 
suddenly speak Spanish because he didn't speak Spanish basically before the break. We didn't, uh, we hadn't seen him speak Spanish in any interviews. And he comes and the way he speaks, it's it's just the the accent um, is really really good. Um, he's not stumbling on any words. Might not be the most difficult answers, but it's just perfection. Everything in the way he says it and how he says it, and he understands all the question, even if they are coming quick. And you can also hear Danny how he realized that he's understanding, so he just goes quicker and quicker. Um, and he also told me afterwards, Danny, that he was super impressed because last time he interviewed Isaac, uh, was he did it in English um, and didn't didn't all expect uh, him to have that level. I don't think we did either. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, like I was, I was genuinely blown away, and I'm I'd set a fairly high standard with people when it comes to languages because I think a lot of people could maybe do a little bit better, uh, and you kind of overstate how difficult it is. Like when footballers in particular, when they've been living in a country for like five or six years and can't even like utter like four words in a row, I feel it was like not really much excuse for that. Um, but. No, I mean, I was genuinely impressed. And I got a little bit of pushback from some people on Twitter, which I realize is probably because he's like has really strong associations. For those of you who don't know with uh, AIK or AIK, I guess you would say in English. So often when you do anything to praise Isaac because like sort of IACO fans are really really over the top in praising him you get a little bit of sort of people rubbing in the other direction you know fans of other teams in Sweden or whatever but I mean honestly to do to do a pitch side interview like that uh, live you don't have any opportunity to like you know take your time and think about things to understand everything that was being asked of them uh, fairly fast paced like you said it's genuinely really really impressive and it just shows, I mean, his integration, like on and off the pitch, has been exceptional and completely ahead of schedule. I would never have expected for him to be <laughs> to be speaking or to be understanding Spanish as well as he is already, and for him to be performing as well as he is already. So all credit to him. And also a bit credit there to be given to Real Sociedad, I think, as well. We had talked about it before, how good they are at developing players. But I think it comes to these kind of things as well outside of the pitch. Because I don't know how it is with other clubs, but I would know that at Real Sociedad, they have like Spanish classes that they make sure uh, that are accessible for the players. And they help the players very much. They, they take them there together and they have them uh, in the same kind of classes or if they are on the same level uh, and so on. Um, and there's a lot of other things around as well. There is such a good club, I think, if you are a young player coming from another country uh, in order to to be able to adapt and adapt quite quickly. They just do, do make everything a lot more smooth for you, I think. Yeah, I mean, the, the only, so I suppose, negative thing about this week is that I, I would say now that after that draw against Levante, and I got the impression that Eman always a little bit arced actually about how they kind of let it get out of their hands because he felt like they made a kind of stupid mistake. But for, for me, I, I think their chances of fourth place now are pretty much done and dusted. I think they're out the window. Sevilla are nine points clear of them in fourth. There's four rounds left to go. I mean, it's, it's not mathematically impossible, but I think to expect Sevilla to drop that many points, uh, to expect Real Sociedad to pick up the, the points necessary to close that gap, considering they've got to play some really tough fixtures. They've got Sevilla in a head-to-head, fair enough. You might be able to get something there, but you've also got Villarreal, who are very much pushing for fourth, and Atletico Madrid in the last day of the season. I don't know, but what's your thoughts? I, I, I kind of feel like it's beyond them now. I, I don't really expect it. Yeah, now I think it's a battle for Europa League for them. Um, what is uh, what we need to remember here is that Real Sociedad and Athletic Club earlier took the decision to move the Copa del Rey final uh, to be played whenever there there can be fans fully in the stadium. So that game is going to be played uh, when you can, when it's too late to win a European spot, which means that we have an extra European spot in the league table. It means that Real Sociedad and Athletic are losing that 
opportunity to gain it that way. Uh, but both of them are kind of in the same position right now, bustling for Europe. So they kind of gain that position by having it in the league as well. Um, and I think that has to be the goal for Real Sociedad to try to get that and try to focus on just getting to Europa League. And to be honest, it's it looks really bad for them. I just before uh, earlier today, I just made a, we have played seven. When this is recorded, we have played exactly seven matches all all teams as we came back from the break. And if you make a table of uh, the points taken and everything from that, Real Sociedad has taken five points, which puts them in in the bottom in in a relegation battle. They are not the bottom three, but they are within one point uh, of, of that battle there. It's like seven teams uh, on the same points, basically, and, and that would have been fighting in the relegation. And that that's just how big turnover it's it's been with Real Sociedad. Uh, so even though they they have looked a little bit better, I would say, in the last two games, they got a win against Espanyol. It's important to note that Espanyol are not really good at the moment, and it was a struggle for them to get that, that win as well. Um, and then they got a draw against Levante, where, as we said, at least Isak looked look like he was uh, getting back to, to his old form, which is really important for them if they at least can get that. But they are still so far off from where they should be playing-wise. And as we've been on before, it's so much to do with confidence and their game is so dependent on being able to be brave. Um, and it, it just takes too much time to build that confidence back up and they don't have it. So they, I think they should be happy if they manage to take an Europa League place. And I'm a little bit worried that they might not even take that. Uh, I'll stick my neck out. Well, here's the thing. At the start of the season, um, we would have said before a ball was kicked, if Real Sociedad got European football, then objective achieved. That's the goal. I think it's because they were so exceptional then before Christmas in particular that we all, and to an extent afterwards, uh, that we all kind of raised our expectations for them. But I'm lo- looking at the run-in just now. I mean, realistically, like if they can take six points from four matches, they, they pretty much should have it wrapped up. The point about that, though, is that, okay, they have Granada at home in their next game. That should be more or less done and dusted, I think, considering Granada have nothing really to play for now. But then they got Villarreal away, like you said. Then they got Sevilla at the Anoeta, who are obviously not wanting to drop any points considering they're trying to tie down fourth place for themselves. Final game of the season, though, is the one for me that I think they, they got Atletico Madrid away. By that point, I would expect that Atletico Madrid will have third place again wrapped up. So they might find that game is a little bit more achievable than you would think. And then the only other thing that I think works in their favour as well is that apart from Athletic Club, uh, the rest of the teams that are sort of more or less within reach of getting a, a Europa League spot, if we're assuming that seventh is going to be a Europa League spot, right? If the Copa del Rey yeah, spot's not there. Um, then the only other team that's really around or thereabouts is Valencia and Valencia are such an absolute disaster right now the, that the only expecting thing, them to turn things around is uh, I don't know yeah the, the only thing with Valencia though uh, is that they can somehow just randomly um, turn things around for like one game or something and when you're not expecting it from how, how we've seen the chaotic of Valencia before uh, that even if it looks bad you, you never really know with them what happens I think yeah, and Valencia's run of fixtures is also pretty kind actually looking at it right now. So yeah, who knows? Who knows? I, but I, I hope that Real Sociedad, I, I hope they can not not see this as two points lost now and see it as a point gained in some way and manage to keep their momentum going and, and try and pick up some more because uh, for our sake, not least for the, the sake of our personal interest, but for also for players who we 
want to see developing and getting the best possible development uh, like Isaac, like Erdegaard. Playing European football next season would be fundamental, I think. So fingers crossed. But hey, uh, we got a lot to talk about, talk about today. So we should uh, move on to our next topic. And sticking with the Scandinavians, we, we have a new Scandinavian in Spanish football, which was unexpected from my uh, part. I didn't see this one coming, but it's uh, pleasant news. So Atletico Madrid have brought a Swede to their ranks. Yes, we have uh, the great Hedvig Lindahl, who has uh, signed for Atletico Madrid. Um, as Atleti's uh, women's team have uh, lost all of their goalkeepers, basically. Uh, so they needed some reinforcements. And I think it's it's a signing that, that I didn't expect either. But it is quite interesting. It feels, though, because she's so uh, as old as she is, I think she's uh, 39 uh, or did I make her even older than she is now? Uh, sorry if, if I did. Long-established <laughs> Swedish national team goalkeeper yes. anyway. I mean, she yeah. has years under her belt. She, she's really good, uh, to be honest. But she, she signed a two-year contract. And and I think we will see her for, for two seasons at Atleti. But if it's going to be longer than that, I'm, I'm unsure about it. No, but I mean, I think she's she's a leader at least, and that I could see how our personality would match Atletico Madrid as a club actually, and I could see how they they would mesh quite well. But yeah, I mean, as a keeper, you can play for a little bit longer. It's not unusual for a goalkeeper to play into their early forties, even if they look after themselves. So they 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 could definitely get two seasons out of her, I think. But yeah, it was completely unexpected and a pleasant surprise from our point of view. Yeah, and so a little background maybe. So uh, as you said, she's. Uh really good and really established uh, goalkeeper. She's been around for a really long time. I remember when, when I started to go and, and watch football, when I was a kid, she was playing for uh, Malmethet's women's team when they still had a women's team before uh, that disavowed or uh, went their separate ways from, from the club. Uh, and then they have it now again. But she was playing for them then back in, in 2003. And I remember going uh, with my aunt to, to watch some games. Uh, so that's how long she's been around. And then she's been uh, playing in Sweden. She's been playing for, for Chelsea for quite a few seasons. It ended quite badly there. She she wasn't really happy with how they handled letting her go. Uh, and then she had this incredible World Cup, uh, which I was at last uh, summer uh, with Sweden. And that was her... Now, now I should have looked this up before, but uh, if I remember correctly, that was her fourth or fifth uh, World Cup. So... She's one of the most more established players when it comes to having played World Cup. And uh, it was her second time that she won a, a bronze at a World Cup. Uh, she was saying, though, that this one was a bigger achievement because she felt that she played better. And also because before Sweden was more established as one of the top countries when it comes to women's football, while now other countries have... Uh, have reached their level and gone past them basically and also in how how much they they put into women's football in the country so she felt it was much more of an uphill battle for them this time and they did really incredibly but so it's a it's a very merited goalkeeper uh that Atletico gets uh I think that the main concern with her sometimes can be that the be her mental state uh and sometimes that if things start going a bit badly um, she can have a bit of an uphill to try to get over it, but she 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 can do that as well. Uh, so it, it's an it's gonna be interesting. And and for those who don't know about Atletico, um, if we take it from the other side, is in, in the same way very established. It's uh, one of the two top teams in Spain. Yeah. 
say Atletico Madrid and Barcelona are the main main teams in Spain. They are on another level than the rest of the league. Basically, they are the teams that plays uh, women's Champions League and and can do things there. And Atletico this season have uh, they are still in the women's Champions League. I'm not sure. I don't think she can play in it though. I'm not I sure about that. I don't think so. I think it would count as yeah. being able to register for it. Yeah, that's played in August, but I think it's it's an historic season for them in the Champions League. They. Uh, beat Manchester City. I mean, they've got Barca in the quarterfinals. That's yeah, the, so, the so they beat yeah. Manchester City to get to the quarterfinals. That's how it was. And it's the first time in the club's history they've gone that far. So it's uh, it's a really good club. And they, they do a lot of work with their women's team. And they, they really care about it in a way, uh, I'd say, uh, many other teams maybe are not in the same level there. So it's it's going to be really interesting to see. Um, if we take Aslani and, and Sofia Jakobsen in in what is now Real Madrid that was Tacón before, that's a completely different level. Atletico is on another level completely. Uh, so this yeah. is a top club. Well, then it's worth pointing out. So Tacón's season, who we haven't spoken out for a, about for a while, but because it was so long ago now, that it kind of petered out into a mid-table nothingness, basically, for them. It was a kind of nothing campaign. But now, the, I guess the more interesting point for us is that we will get a legitimate Swedish Madrid derby, potentially, next season, with uh, Swedes on both teams now that Tacón are officially Real Madrid rather than unofficially Real Madrid. Uh, it means we can, I guess, we can label it a Madrid derby, even if it would have been a Madrid derby before on the basis of geographical uh, locations, but now because of the two clubs. So that's cool. And I think like it's interesting what you said as well about the, the level being different now in the international game, uh, especially when Sweden are concerned that other uh, nations have gotten better and have risen up to kind of meet them. That The fact that there's actually... Now, several Swedish uh, players in the, the Spanish Women's League says something about the level of the Spanish Women's League as well, because not that long ago, maybe 10 years ago, like you wouldn't have had people from Sweden choosing to play in Spain. Yes, less than that, less than that, yeah. way less than that as well. It's changed quite rapidly, I think. It, it still has a very long way to go. Like I said, Barcelona and Atletico, they are very different level than the rest of the league. And I think that's one of the things that maybe Sofia Jakobsson and Kosovar Aslani didn't realize that it's that big of a difference just within the league itself. Anyway, I'm not going to go further onto it, but I just want to mention just quickly that because we haven't said anything about it since we haven't talked about the Women's League, that the Spanish Women's League uh, was, uh, what, what do you say, cancelled, basically. Yeah. So while the Men's League is on right now, uh, of because of Corona, the, the the women's league they did not continue with it. All right, moving on, returning to La Liga uh, masculina, <laughs> returning to to the the men's league. Uh, we have a what is always a, a fixture of note coming up tomorrow night. Although I guess by the time this is released, it will be tonight if we're talking about uh, Wednesday. The Barcelona derby, where if Espanyol don't win, they are officially relegated from La Liga. So quite literally the worst possible circumstance that I think a, an Espanyol fan could really imagine themselves in. Hey, it's football, things can change. But I think even an Espanyol fan would begrudgingly admit at this point that it's highly unlikely that this doesn't happen given how their seasons have gone. With Espanyol, I have felt for a while that they're a club that's lost their way and has sort of lost their identity. And it's been kind of gradually coming for a long time. But I mean, it's... It, okay... It's over 10, 10 years ago now, but this was a team who, who used to play in cup finals, both domestic and international. It was a team who, if you look a little bit further back, had a stadium that the fans loved in Sarriá. 
and had a very clear identity, neighborhood barrio identity in, in Barcelona. Um, and for me, what's happened to them is a combination of different things, but I, I feel like they've, they've lost their sort of niche in the city of Barcelona now, where it's increasingly more and more, if you're a kid and you don't have a family that's an Espanol supporting family and are not passing it down, it's really hard to see how a kid grows up and ends up supporting Espanol when you have that giant multinational behemoth down the road. Um, and I think you see that reflected too in the stadium. I mean, if for those of you, I don't know, who haven't been to Cornellal Prat, it's a little bit outside of town. It's kind of awkward to get to. You have to take like the the not normal uh, metro subway, but you take the sort of commuter train, I guess you would call it, to get out there. Uh, and in my experience, I mean, even last season when they were pushing for, for Europe, the, the attendances weren't great. And I didn't think that was a particularly good sign. Um, and on a bad day, it can be genuinely about two thirds empty. Uh, and it's a shame because, I mean, this is a club, like we said, that, that used to play in finals and who built up a reputation as being a really successful cup team in particular, being particularly good in cup competition. Uh, and, it, and it looks like we're going to be seeing the back of them in La Liga. And my concern with Espanyol is that they could go the way of uh, much bigger teams still like Real Zaragoza or Sporting de Gijón and have a really hard time trying to re-establish themselves as a regular La Liga side. Yeah, I think you're touching on something quite interesting there about the, the identity with Espanyol and everything. Um, I think that like, when they did the move to Cornell Prat, I think it was really necessary for them to get their own stadium because it had been playing at Montjuic, uh, which is the old uh, Olympic stadium in Barcelona, which was way too big for them. So there was impossible for them to create any type of atmosphere. Uh, the big problem, as you say, is when they left Saria, because that's what used to be Espanol, um, that area, that neighborhood. Um, and now, as you say, they are outside of the city and it's it's quite difficult to get to that stadium. And even though I think that the stadium itself is quite good, um, I actually... Like, like it, I think you, especially when, when you compare it to where they were at the, at the Olympic Stadium at Montjuic before, that you can get an atmosphere in another way. But the problem is that the, if you can't get the atmosphere, if you can't get the fans there, and when it's in such a remote area um, and there's no, no kids growing up to be Espanol fans because it's the, the team of your neighborhood anymore, um, you lose a lot of what was Espanol. And, and it's quite sad to see. Yeah, I think you know Mon- Montjuic had a running track and it wasn't really a proper football stadium. It was one of that sort of cursed generation of sort of late 80s, early 90s multi-purpose stadiums that thankfully we're not building anymore because they're neither particularly good football stadiums nor particularly great places to see other things. Um, and like you said, yeah, Cornellà is, is a great, really super modern ground, or at least when it was built, super modern, still holds up well. Great sight lines from pretty much everywhere, but yeah, terrible place. If you had to take that stadium and put it back where Saria was, which is now like a housing complex, so that's impossible, but you, you could see how it could have been good. But um, for me, I think we maybe should have seen this coming, not, not least because, you know, for how Espanyol has been run for quite a while. But when, when Ruby decided to leave at the end of last season, when they just secured European football, and you can say, yeah, it's Betis. A lot of people were like, oh, you know, he's a traitor and he's jumping shit. But for, for me, immediately, the, the alarm bells went off in my head. I was like, hmm, this is a guy that's been around a little bit. He's been at a badly run club before, i.e. Girona. Um, he, he knows what's coming here. And then so proved to be they sold their best players uh, or their best player in the summer didn't strengthen properly 
and then ended up blowing their two best players of course because uh, Russell went to Atleti as well um, and then blew tons of money up the wall in the winter to try and compensate for it when of course the obvious thing is well you need to spend the money in the summer you can't be playing catch up from halfway through the season and the managerial merry-go-round hasn't helped things either so I mean it's it's sad but not a surprise is my conclusion really. Yeah, well, you say we should have seen it coming. I think we, we did see it coming, to be honest. Like, I already last season, before last season, I felt before the season started that looking at the Espanol squad, that they had one of the, the, the weakest squad in the entire league. So it was more of a surprise that they ended up doing as well as they did. I would have expected them already last season to be be further down the table and, and having struggle, really. But what happened was that Ruby somehow managed to, to get a lot of these players to overperform. And he especially managed to, to get the best out of, of the three key players, which was Marc Roca, Mario Hermoso and Borja Iglesias. And I think you could see last season that when either of those three players didn't play or were injured, they were struggling a lot. And if they were didn't have two of them or something like that, they would always lose. Uh, but even just being without one of them, it was like you had Marc Roca in the, in the midfield, you had Mario Hermoso in the defense and Borja Iglesias in the attack. And having those three and the connection that they had through the pitch together, uh, I think what was what made Espanyol do something so incredible last season as reaching Europe uh, despite not having the strongest squad. And then losing Ruby, who was the one that made this happen and get these players to overperform. And then losing Mario Hermoso to Atletico and losing Borja Iglesias uh, to Real Betis, who only had Marc Roca left. For, for me, and then as you said, they, they didn't do any, any signings that felt like, okay, they're covering this up. Uh, I actually felt like they were one of the weakest ones in the transfer market as well. Uh, for, for me, it was like Espanol is going to struggle a lot this season. And that's what we're seeing now. Maybe they are struggling even more than I expected, but I'm not surprised at all that they are down there in the relegation battle, to be honest. And what we'll see now as well is that, I mean, Marc Rocco already had um, been attracting some interest from bigger clubs, but now if and when they, they go down, he'll go, I would think. It would be highly unlikely to see him stay. Uh, Raul de Tomas will surely go, I would think, as well. Uh, so anything left that's quality there, it's going to be really hard for them to keep a hold of. But we can probably dedicate a more in-depth look at this if and when that, uh, the relegation is confirmed because there's there's plenty more to say about it. But it's a sad story, I think, because, like I said, it's, it's a club who at one point in time had a really clear identity and, had a, and they still have a lot of diehard fans who really love them but are not loving the way that they've been run, which is a kind of familiar story for us here when we're looking at La Liga, sadly. And and you mentioned before uh, that if or when Espanyol goes down that they might struggle to, to get back up again. Uh, looking at Sporting and, and Saragossa, etc. One thing, though, if we're going to find anything positive with the Espanol's future, I think is the fact that they have an extremely strong youth academy. I think it's one of the most underrated youth academy in Spain and probably a lot because it's in the same city as uh, Barcelona's La Masia. But if you look at a lot of, of talents at La Masia, a lot of those players have been at Espanol as well. Um, and if you look, I, it 
didn't know this was several years ago I did this, but I went like through um, some, yeah, several years ago, I went through uh, different clubs in La Liga to see what team had the most players actually playing in La Liga football who at some point had been at their youth academy. And Espanol was one of, uh, of, it's one of the ones at the top of the list. So they have a really, really, and even if that was several years ago, they continue to be strong in that area. Marc Roca is a guy from the youth academy at Espanol as well. Um, so that's one thing that, that could come to serve them really, really well if uh, or when they go down and if they start to get trouble to, to go, get back up again, that they actually have a youth academy where they can get really good players. Their problem has been that those players have very seldom played for Espanol. Uh, they've been developed in the youth academy and then they sold them uh, and they've been doing breaking through in other clubs. So if they could change that narrative and try to keep on to those players and get them out to play for actually play for Espanol, and maybe they miss that kind of thing that a lot some other clubs have where you get that identity into the players where they really want to play for the club. Uh, but that's the one positive I can see at Espanol is that they have a strong youth academy. Yeah, as a, a friend and former colleague who will remain nameless for uh, the sake of not putting names on anything said to me, and he's an Espanol, he said they, I said, do they need a clear out? And he said, root and branch. So, I mean, I think they really need to tidy up uh, the people that are in charge there making decisions and, and put football people who know what they're doing in, in charge and build a proper project from the, the Segunda upwards. Speaking of people who are used to dealing with non-football people, it turns out that my laughing suggestion about Manuel Pellegrini to Real Betis apparently is not such a humorous suggestion after all because according to Estadio Deportivo who when it comes to news on either Sevilla or Betis are very 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 reliable journalists who work in the city do nothing but covering those clubs and have exceptional contacts Pellegrini is going to sign a two-year deal with Betis and it will only happen when their uh, season is over or effectively over if you know what I mean there's nothing left to play for but I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are on this because I know that he's not necessarily had the easiest time in the last few years, especially post Manchester City. But for me, a club that are so run by such crazy, or maybe not crazy, <laughs> but unusual people as Betis have been, are run by uh, historically and currently, this is a guy who has a very good record of performing under challenging conditions, not least at Malaga in particular I'm thinking of, where he was dealing with an absolute crackpot of an owner, but still managed to get a team to within very, very, very close uh, distance of going to the Champions League semi-finals, it would have been had it not been for that loss against Dortmund. Um, and his teams generally can play really exciting, at least his Spanish teams um, play some pretty exciting football. So... I don't know if, if if Pellegrini can bring a little bit of the magic that gave us that really exciting Malaga team, not least the uh, Villarreal team as well, then I could see how it could work at Betis. Or, or am I being naive? Is this all going to fall apart like everything at the Benito Villamarín? Didn't he have uh, Joaquin in that Malaga squad? Mm -hmm. Joaquin's like forgotten year at Malaga. Yeah, exactly. I always forget he was there. The, sort of between <laughs> the, the, only reason I remember, the only reason I remember that he was at Malaga was because he did a stand-up when he did his presentation for Malaga. Instead of doing kickabouts, he took a microphone and had stand-up comedy. <laughs> uh, no, but the, I, I think you, I, I think Pellegrini could work at Betis. Um, I think it's a definitely a coach that that could potentially handle that that situation because it is a very difficult thing to to coach Betis there is a lot more than football that comes to it um, and even though it isn't a, a Real Madrid or a Barca or a Manchester City there is a lot of pressure when you coach Betis because they have a lot a lot a lot of fans and very demanding fans 
but at the same time, I don't know. Like, uh, it's not a. It doesn't excite me uh, to see Pellegrino as the new Betis coach. It's not like this is going to be be so much fun. Uh, it could turn out to to be perfect and and work really well. But at the same time, it feels like an old in the game who maybe already has had uh, his peak in his managing career. And uh, I don't know, it, it just doesn't excite me as, uh, as, as sometimes uh, when, when you see a new manager at the club does. Yeah, I can buy that. But we'll see. We'll soon see. Uh, all right, final point of business. Uh, this Saturday will be 10 years, which is terrifying, since Spain won their first and today only World Cup in South Africa. Uh, I This has kind of made me feel a little bit nostalgic. I don't normally get too nostalgic about football, but I feel like that particular time, sort of 2010, was quite pivotal for me at least in my uh, 10 years since like working with football I mean I'll ask you first like what are your memories of that tournament and that Spain team does that World Cup hold any particularly strong strong memories for you it does like in, in Sweden I don't think that World Cup was so big because Sweden wasn't at it um, and now I think it was the first one in, in quite a while that Sweden didn't make the World Cup but for me at that uh, at that age I was very very much into Spanish football and uh, I almost supported the Spanish national team more than the Swedish don't tell anyone because people get angry about that uh, so so I was very excited and I, I remember before the the World Cup started that I was like oh Sweden uh, Spain is gonna win the World Cup and being like I'm, I'm telling you Spain is gonna win the World Cup and then when they did I was quite uh, quite proud over myself because I had predicted it uh, but no it, it was a really fun one to watch as someone who was really really supporting Spain um, I remember that it but it almost felt like it at the start there with the Switzerland game like maybe <laughs> maybe this is not gonna turn out that well after all uh, but it was a very special team I think with those players I think that was uh, as good as it gets basically you know I'm, I'm gonna be like a little bit I don't know I'm not gonna this isn't controversial but contrary and say that I actually didn't particularly enjoy watching Spain at that tournament so much and I preferred the Luis Aragonés side's way of playing football which was a little bit more free-flowing and a little bit less conservative than the Vicente Del Bosque team which that said I mean the the Del Bosque team had a way better squad like if you think about the, yeah. the team that won the Euros before had like Danny Grisa in there I mean <laughs> there's, there's no there's no doubt over which one had the most talented players but I mean in part because of the way that other teams set up against them at the World Cup too like it was like generally most sides set out from the beginning to try and stop them playing football but at, at times to me it felt like watching like a slower version of Barcelona like they weren't quite as snappy and and I guess that's also in part because of, because of how ridiculously high the level that Pep Guardiola's Barca were setting at the time. Um, but that's not to say that they weren't good to watch. In a weird kind of way, I actually think uh, the, the Euro 2012 team, the one that came afterwards, even if in, in general, like across the board, it probably wasn't as good and as, good, as consistent. The, the final, the performance where they won against Italy and that, for me, that was like a way better display of football than, than what came at the 2010 World Cup. But then... I mean, hey, it's about getting over the line and winning your first World Cup. You get the results and you have someone like David Villa who can bang the ball in the back of the net and you're, you're laughing, basically. I, I can absolutely buy that. And I think the World Cup was more a struggle. I think the thing also was uh, that in 2012, they had already won the Euros one time. So they didn't have that same pressure that had always been on the shoulders. 
uh, and they also had won the World Cup, going in both the the Euro in 2008 and and the World Cup in, in 2010 was huge for Spain because it was going over a barrier that they had never done before. Well, they had won the Euro uh, before, but it was over 60 years uh, earlier, so it's it was a different time. And and the World Cup, they had this uh, this stage that they just couldn't get over. Um, and when they finally did that, it was like everything just uh, went off their shoulders. So I think it, in, in that sense, the, the way they played in the Euro, they could play better football because they were in just trouble in that sense. And at the World Cup, it was more a struggle of, of making something that always had been impossible uh, happen more than it was to play the most beautiful football. And obviously the, that, that final, even if uh, as someone who's supporting Spain afterwards, you look back at it and you see it as this incredible thing that basically the only thing you, you remember is Iniesta's goal and how amazing that was. But that final was horrible. Oh. It was a really, really ugly football match that never ended, basically. Such a filthy game, um, not for Spain's fault, really. Um, but the weird thing, uh, the memories I have of that final and I guess of the Spain games in general are kind of strange because like so I was uh it was my first summer in Barcelona and my first time that I'd moved away from from home abroad uh not away from home but away abroad anyway um and I was there learning Catalan so I was staying in Sitges which is just like down the coast so I mean I guess you could call it like Barcelona metropolitan area if you like um but it was a strange sort of sentiment because like the Spain games were on I mean any bar would have been showing them but there was a large proportion of the population there who weren't particularly keen for Spain to win because they didn't particularly care for Spain which in hindsight now seems obvious but at the time maybe it wouldn't have been but at the same time they had this kind of conflicting thing where <laughs> because so many members of that team were Barca players and because they loved the Barca players so much they sort of wanted them to do well as well so there was always this like constant battle between like Spain have like won a super important match. I don't want to celebrate, but ah, like I'm super pleased for like Sergio Busquets and Gerard Piquet and Carlos Puyol. So it was a kind of strange situation, but whatever, it did something good for me apparently anyway, because I kind of decided that summer, okay, I want to work with uh, Spanish football and like I want to cover La Liga for a living and I ended up doing it. So it must have left some impression. But yeah, if it was like a nice memory from a, di a different time, it would be interesting now for me to go back because I haven't actually rewatched that tournament since it happened. It would be interesting to go back and watch it now and see what I thought of it. If it was, if the level was higher than I thought at the time, and and what my opinion would be these days, really. And for me, what that tournament is as well is Andres Iniesta. Uh, not just the goal and the final, but the entire tournament. He's uh, the entire story of Iniesta and, and that tournament. I think is incredible. For for those who don't know, uh, Iniesta was struggling a lot. So Barcelona had just won the the treble in the two thousand eight nine season. Uh, and then he got an injury and then from that he had a lot of injury troubles really hard getting back to, to playing football and in the midst of all that uh, Dani Juarque who was uh, Espanyol's captain and who was uh, one of Iniesta's close friends uh, for many many years suddenly died um, very out from, from, from nowhere just falling uh, and because of a heart problem. Uh, and that all spiraled into Andres Iniesta going into a depression, uh, which he's talked about later. Um, and the World Cup basically was dragging him out of all that. It was first off a real fight for him to, to get to that World Cup. And the fact that the Bosque named him in, in the squad to even go to the World Cup, some were questioning that because he wasn't fit. He, he, he wasn't fit from his injuries and he was in a really troubled place. 
but Del Bosque basically said that it would be the biggest mistake if he did not uh, have Iniesta in his squad, uh, which it later obviously turned out. And then during the tournament, uh, Iniesta had, I think, one or two fallbacks uh, with injuries and had to really push through all of that. And then scoring that goal um, in the way that he did and then celebrating it with a shirt uh, dedication to Dani Juarque, I think that was just incredible. And I think for... Uh, for sports and for mental health and that he later have been brave enough to go out and talk about everything that happened before that tournament, I think is really, really important for, for football and for mental health in, in sports in general to someone like that with that status talking about it in the way that he has. Okay, now that you've said something super important, you're going to make me feel really petty, which my closing point was, and it's nowhere near as important. It's significant. It's the also the year for me that Xavi was robbed of the Ballon d'Or. And don't give me your yeah. Wesley Schneider bullshit because Xavi won a goddamn <laughs> World Cup and he was probably one of the most important players in it, along with winning La Liga. And let's be honest, Barca were a ball here away from the Champions League final two and would have won it had they gone through. But uh, yeah, mic drop. That's all I have to say about that. But he should have won <laughs> it. It was an you. absolute travesty that he didn't. That that player who's that good has never uh, had that recognition, especially when he had a year that, that, was, that was that exceptional. But hey, what do I know, right? I'm sure we're going to get tons of Inter Milan fans coming back to us telling us about how Xavi was rubbish and, you know, didn't have any merits, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Okay, It was incredible then. (laughs) I'm completely with you. (laughs) Rant over. I think that's probably enough before I get us into some legal trouble. Uh, Do you have any closing words or shall we just say... Um, It's really warm in Spain. That's my closing words. It's extremely hot. You know, it's actually, I've heard, is really good. If you remove the 150 football shirts from your house, maybe it will cool it down because you're putting too much insulation in there. It's keeping too much of the warmth in. Uh, science, children. No, but when you watch La Liga right now, when you it looks like the players are dying, it's because it's come extremely hot. I was sitting on the balcony yesterday at 10 o'clock and I brought my fan outside because it was too warm. I thought it was all the pressure from the totally amazing virtual fans that was making them look like they were about to collapse. All right, game over. We should say adios. We'll see you next week. Adios. Hasta luego. Ciao.